Welcome to Corestruction, a show about the missions, activities, and employees of the Tulsa District U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Today I'm joined by Dr. Tony Clyde. Dr. Clyde is currently a project manager in our Civil Works branch, but he spent many years here in the Tulsa District as our limnologist. Now, uh, Dr. Clyde, welcome to Corestruction. Thank you. It's, uh, I'm glad to be here. And can you tell us what a limnologist is? Yeah. Um, a limnologist is a biologist who specializes in the study of reservoirs and lakes. So limnos is the Greek word for lake, uh, ology, uh, study of, and so study of uh, lakes and reservoirs. And one of the areas that you especially focus on or focused on when you were working in, as a limnologist here was blue-green algae and harmful algal blooms. So can you talk about the what that is exactly what a, what a blue green what the difference is between necessarily blue green algae in general versus a harmful algal bloom yeah so uh blue green algae are also known as cyanobacteria and over the course of of time uh recent time um classifying organisms the uh cyanobacteria have bounced back and forth between the uh, division cyanobacteria and cyanophyta. So ophida uh, meaning plant, um, cyanobacteria, of course, bacteria being bacteria. So they are organisms that have both plant and bacteria characteristics. So they're bacteria that have a chloroplast, basically. They photosynthesize. And so uh, they are a natural component of all aquatic ecosystems. Um, like any ecosystem, uh, they can become out of balance because of uh, anthropogenic or human uh, forces and uh, activities or just because of the natural cycle of uh, ecosystems where growth and and then decline, growth and decline repeatedly over time. So um, uh, when a HAB occurs, a harmful algal bloom, uh, we refer to as a HAB, um, uh, when a HAB occurs and it's uh, dominated by cyanobacteria, that's just a, a, an event that occurs when those cyanobacteria grow to such a level in the, in the aquatic environment that they pose a, a risk or a threat to human and other uh, uh, natural and, and wildlife resources. Now... Is all blue-green algae harmful in terms of its potential uh, uh, impact on humans or fish or, or animals? So that's a great question because it's uh, it, harmful is based on the point of view that you're looking at a harmful algal bloom from or any algal bloom. So uh, cyanobacteria are not the only algae or algae or bacteria that occur in, in aquatic environments. And uh, uh, again, they're, they're, they're a natural component of the ecosystem. So you can have uh, non-cyanobacterial algal growth that occurs that can be harmful as well. So green algae is a group of algae, red algae, yellow algae. They all have, uh, uh, those are common names, but, uh, um, but they uh, uh, can all grow to levels where they become harmful to the, to the ecosystem when they uh, go through a point in their growth p pattern that's called senescence. And so that's when you have growth 
the upward uh, increase in biomass of, a, of an algal species of any, of any kind, of any group. And uh, it peaks and then it goes into senescence, which is that die off. And as the um, individuals in that, uh, in that uh, uh, population die off, they put a uh, biological or a chemical oxygen demand on the water and they're using up oxygen that's in the water to, to decay. And that can lead to a, uh, uh, a harmful effect in terms of available oxygen to fish and other aquatic wildlife that rely on that um, oxygen that's dissolved in the water. And the, the microcysteine, right, that's usually the, 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 the chemical that, or the, 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 the thing that they give off that is harmful to potentially to so, humans or... So, yeah, so, so there's, so again, you know, there's lots of different ways to look at, at what is harmful and what isn't. So the, the impact on available oxygen in the water column is uh, one aspect that um, algal blooms can be harmful. For cyanobacterial blooms, the, the other aspect of, of, uh, of how harmful they can be to humans and to other wildlife is the fact that some cyanobacterial uh, species are able to produce what are called cyanotoxins. Microcystin is one cyanotoxin that is produced, but there, there are multiple cyanotoxins that are produced depending on um, whether the freshwater or a marine organism. But my focus historically has been on, on freshwater systems, and that's what I'll, I'll probably focus, that's what I will focus on today. But um, the, uh, the, when, an al- when a cyanobacteria bloom starts to produce the, uh, um, those cyanotoxins, microcystin being one and, al- and the most commonly one that is produced by a cyanobacteria or, or blue-green algae, um, the, um, the, the microcystin can occur in concentrations that are harmful to um, mammals, uh, humans, and other, other wildlife. And the, the the organisms that are most commonly impacted, that we have documented that are most commonly impacted by microcystin and other cyanotoxins tend to be um, domestic animals um, and, uh, and mammalian wildlife, but spe- especially companion animals, so like dogs and, uh, and cattle tend to be the, uh, the mammals that we uh, um, see impacts in most commonly. Are there cases that you're aware of, even with like stock ponds, where cattle have drank from a stock pond that may have gotten developed uh, outbreaks or anything? Yeah, several states, um, uh, including Oklahoma uh, and Kansas and the Tulsa district, as well as, as Texas and 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 um, um, the the most the 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 highest number of stock pond or cattle pond. Uh, um, impacts that I have, have read about due to cyanobacteria and microcystin production and impacting cattle um, have been in Oklahoma and Texas. And, and regularly you will see um, uh, ag newsletters and uh, NRCS, USDA, and, and, and state agricultural agencies as well as extension offices put out um, almost annual reminders now to keep an eye on stock ponds, particularly during the summer when um, when it gets hot and calm and uh, the conditions become more favorable for uh, excessive uh, cyanobacterial growth in those stock ponds. Algal blooms in general have been localized to areas or spotty, right, on certain lakes. Like you'll see them on, you can see them on any lake, but you, you would see a, 
a spot and they're typically localized to where you see the spot, right? Or is that, how do you identify and make a determination? So, yeah, so there's a lot of factors that go into that and, and the, our ability to track algal blooms in general, cyanobacterial blooms or harmful algal blooms specifically um, via remote sensing, satellite platforms, and, uh, and, 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 and uh, even, even with drone footage as well, um, has increased uh, uh, quite a bit over the last uh, uh, five years particularly, but over the last 10 years especially, um, as, uh, as that technology has improved and the, and the um, algorithms have been developed to take satellite imagery and to um, assess for chlorophyll or for another pigment that is specific to cyanobacteria in fresh water, which is called psychophyanin. But, uh, or phycocyanin, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> Psychophyanin. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, it's insane. <laughs> <laughs> it can be sometimes. Um, so, and your tongue's, your tongue gets twisted with all these right. big, big science words. So, so the so term is phycocyanin? Is phycocyanin. And so the, um, um, so we're, we're able to use satellite platforms and, uh, um, and some tools developed by, the US EPA and the USGS, as well as the Corps of Engineers and our Engineer Research Development Center that allow um, for the Corps specifically and, and for other water use, uh, other wake managers that are managed non-federal reservoirs to um, uh, access those, uh, those uh, remotely sensed data and to access the uh, uh, algorithms via websites to uh, take a, a, a quick, hard, fast look at uh, um, have impacts based on how frequently those those uh, satellite platforms fly over. So some satellites fly over a lake every two weeks. Some fly over every three hours. Some you can actually task if you if you have the ability to task satellites, um, and you can task them to um, go over a, a reservoir that may be heavily impacted every every three hours or every six hours, whatever the, the tasking allowance is for, for a satellite. But, but we're able to, to use those, or you can go out and, and old-fashioned, uh, um, uh, you know, muddy water biologist, limnologist type of uh, sampling and just go dip water from a boat and fill up some jars and send them off to a lab and, and uh, a phycologist, a, 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 a algal taxonomist, and have them look and tell you what you, what you have as well. But, um, but yeah, they can be... Um, you know, when you're seeing them with the with the naked eye, the unaided eye, they you'll see green concentrations of water or of cyano, blue green um, uh, concentration of water up in a cove or up against a shoreline. Um, what is what really helps with the with the management of uh, bloom exposure and recreation management and, and informing people of the risk associated with these types of blooms is uh, with the satellite platforms and the remotely sensed data, you get a bird's eye view of the entire lake and you can look at how the concentration varies from area to area. So even though you can't see something with the uh, naked eye or the unaided eye, um, there still may be cyanobacteria present at concentrations that could cause um, uh, a, 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 an, a, a reaction, uh, a, a reaction, either a dermal reaction, <laughs> or would would trigger a uh, threshold in a state um, uh, have response uh, policy if 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 that particular state has one in place. Now, in in the way we work, you you kind of worked on the 
the uh, protocols that we we use in conjunction with the states, right? Um, yeah, we've interacted quite a bit with the states of uh, Oklahoma and Kansas within the Tulsa district um, area of responsibility, and uh, um, and have uh, have worked very collaboratively um, with both states to um, to develop HAB response policies. Um, to incorporate those policies into the way we manage our recreation areas and to be able to um, uh, alert the public to increased uh, um, increased uh, risks to recreation that, that harmful algal blooms can pose. And so what we in Oklahoma, they're referred to as a uh, blue-green algae awareness level or a wellness awareness alert level that uh, you may have seen some of the commercials that uh, aired during the summertime from the Oklahoma Department of Tourism and Recreation. They came up with a great motto that if it's green on top, stop, and they, they put a stop sign in the ad, um, it may be blue-green algae. And so just to pause if you see discolored water and 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 and, uh, and and check in with the ranger station or with the volunteer station at the gate shack or if you're at a core reservoir, um, and uh, or one of our volunteers, they'll they'll be they'll be in the know usually about what um, the hab risks are on any given wake at any given time based on our um, sampling. And we in Kansas, uh, um, it's a little bit different. They they actually have a uh, um, a, a more aggressive uh, um, uh, uh, response plan in terms of, uh, 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 of quite a few more stages of, of uh, warning of advisory levels and warnings and, and lake closures and hazard warnings that are all based on cell densities and toxin levels, primarily, again, microcystin that we, that I talked about earlier. Um, but uh, those are the two categories that really are, or that those thresholds for action from the state are really based on. And the, we'll do the sampling for the state typically, but we'll send it to the state. Is that correct? So, Or does it vary by state? It varies by state because the states uh, have basically uh, taken the lead on development of HAB response protocols for the most part. Um, and so uh, in the lakes in Kansas, where uh, our uh, recreation customers would visit, um, the state of Kansas, the Kansas Department of Health and Environment, they do the majority of the sampling and we support those efforts logistically or sometimes with staff to actually go out and collect the samples, but then they they run the samples and incorporate those into their state database, run them through their policy, and then weekly during the recreation season they will um, issue um, changes to any advisories, warnings, or hazard um, conditions that occur across the state of Kansas. Conversely, in Oklahoma, for the core reservoirs, we will sample when we have a, uh, uh, a harmful algal bloom or a potential harmful algal bloom that is reported to our lake office. Then our lake office will coordinate with uh, biologists, limnologists in the district office to collect samples, have those analyzed by the uh, contractors that we have available to us through blanket purchase agreements and through our relationships with the, again, the Engineer Research Development Center provides a great deal of support to the district on water quality and have response. And then we will coordinate with Oklahoma Department of Tourism and Recreation to um, uh, interpret the data and then... Uh, the OTRD, the Oklahoma Department of Tourism and Recreation, will um, put out the uh, 
the the risk communication to the uh, recreating public through the uh, OTRD website on a Check My Lake page. And they provide fishing status uh, and uh, and water quality status updates on that page. What Do we know what causes or what the big contributors are to uh, blooms and why they may be more common in some places than others? Yeah, so, so historically, um, it was thought that it was... Uh, uh, Excess phosphorus and not enough nitrogen being present in the um, in the water, and some cyanobacteria have the ability to fix atmospheric nitrogen. So, in the presence of, of excess phosphorus, which doesn't limit growth, and their ability to fix atmospheric nitrogen, they're just able to outcompete other members of the algal assemblage overall. A lot of those other blue. Uh, uh, the other Green colors? algae, yeah, the other <laughs> colors of the of the rainbow, so to speak. It is Pride Month, so the, you know, the, like like everywhere else, the the colors of the rainbow are there in the lake. So, uh, but the green algae, the yellow algae, the the red algae, um, it they're just able to outcompete those. And diatoms as well are another important uh, component of the algal assemblage that uh, um, are almost like little glass discs, petri dishes, and they have a lot of silica in them, and so they're. Uh, um, diatomaceous earth is made from diatoms in, in the old diatoms in, in old lake and ocean sediments. So, um, so, uh, um, it allows the cyanobacteria to outcompete those, um, other members of the algal assemblage or the phytoplankton assemblage. And, um, and, and so that historically was the, was the primary focus was nitrogen and phosphorus. In reality, like so many other things, is that the, the real answer is a lot more complex. And so um, the lake is full of a lot of things. Bacteria, algae, fish, insects, and they're all interacting with each other. But there's been a lot of focus recently in, in some, some more recent R&D, research and development initiatives of, uh, of uh, academics and government agencies. Um, that focus on the microbiome of the lake itself. So there's, you know, like the like the emphasis the recently on the microbiome of the gut, and for gut health, the microbiome of the lake also in, in, can inform you on lake health. And so those bacteria are interacting with each other, and so um, so nutrients do play a role. Temperature, water temperature, and atmospheric temperature do play a role. Um, uh, light availability, how how muddy the water is, how turbid the water is. We call it turbidity, but basically how cloudy or muddy the water is limits how deep light will penetrate into a, into a water column. The deeper light goes, the, the, the more volume there is in the water for active photosynthesis. And so the deeper the layer of active photosynthesis is in that surface layer of water. So light availability plays a role in, um, in bloom formation and uh, in competition. And then just general hydrology. So um, we tend not to see blooms occur while we're making a lot of releases and passing things through the lake. So if we're making flood control leases, releases, we tend to see, in general, in broad generalities, we tend to see less of an algal bloom uh, if there is one. Um, conversely, there have been periods of time where we're holding back flood waters and we have 
what happens is an influx of water comes into the lake. We hold it for a period of time without making releases because we're making releases not only from a lake during floods, but within the basin as a whole. And different lakes have different priorities for releases under those water control plans. We've seen uh, periods where we're holding water back in a reservoir and uh, the nutrient loading then occurs in the reservoir there's a lot of un there's a lot of excess nutrients then available we're not making releases the uh, inflows stop the water clears and then we see a, a huge bloom that happened at, uh, at at multiple reservoirs back in 2011 following some floods really in the in the um <clears throat> Central Great Plains, South Central Great Plains, and in, in Oklahoma, Kansas, and, and parts of uh, Nebraska. There's almost, I mean, pretty much everywhere you go, there's some amount of, of BGA in the water, whether you see it or not, right? Like there's always the, that that's always present, right? It is. It's a, like a, um, as, as a lot of our guidance uh, that the Corps uses, the Tulsa District uses, and, and just uh, um, the, the basic ecology 101 is that cyanobacteria, blue-green algae, are a natural component of the ecosystem, and they become excessive and can be, can, can be, um, uh, become a, a harmful algal bloom when that growth occurs um, uh, in excess of, uh, and, and outcompetes the other natural components of the, of the, of the phytoplankton assemblage. And are there... Are there um... Are there organisms that actually feed upon blue-green algae? So there are some organisms that will feed on blue-green algae. Um, there are also a lot of organisms that will um, that are filter feeders that can select against blue-green algae. So in terms of the um, <clears throat> the uh, nutritional value of blue-green algae, cyanobacteria, um, over other types of algae, um, they uh, are, are uh, less nutritious for mussels, other bivalves that occur, other zooplankton, um, rotifers, uh, other grazers that occur in the system, um, even something like a, like a paddlefish, which is right. a filter feeder. Um, they're not going to be able to actively select against blue-green algae um, on purpose, but the, you know, even there, uh, blue-green algae, some blue-green algae form large colonies, some are, are uh, 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 individual filaments and they don't form huge colonies but they're individual filaments of just a few cells that uh, uh, that uh, can pass through those uh, filter uh, filters on the uh, on the uh, that the paddlefish use to filter phytoplankton out of the out of the water column but uh, um, you know evolutionarily even even some of the filter feeders uh, that can't actively select against blue green algae the size of the filtration apparatus that they use to filter water to feed um, selects against blue-green algae because they just don't have a lot of nutritional value. Hmm. So does that mean it just passes through? Just passes through, yeah. So, And there, there, there aren't microorganisms that we know of that really feed upon it or? Not, not to a great extent, not that we're aware of. No. Okay. Um, so when you have a bloom, if, I guess conditions, whatever they are, atmospheric or or uh, nutrient or sunlight, whatever, um, eventually it has to reach critical mass, right? Do we know what causes a bloom to to hit a sort of a critical mass and 
and then, re, you know, revert. revert. So, um, so the with any growth cycle, you have exp- exponential growth. So what happens here is it's a tra- very typical exponential growth cycle. You have this exponential growth and high biomass, high numbers of individuals, but ultimately it's a very high biomass. It hits a peak, and then it drops off a cliff, basically a straight line down, and the population crashes. And so in an algal population or a cyanobacterial population, what occurs is is that um, they hit a limiting factor, and that could be um, nutrient availability, um, it could be a micronutrient availability at that, not just nitrogen and phosphorus, but some other micronutrient that's critical to them. Um, uh, it could be that a, uh, a flood or a rain event has occurred or a wind event occurred that uh, caused either sediment resuspension through inflowing water from the watershed or a sediment resuspension event within the lake from uh, high wind activity, which is So that uncommon. means like the bottom gets kicked up and you get dirty, dirty looking water. You get dirty looking water because right. the wind is blowing, wave action stirs up the, the sediments or the mud on the bottom right. of the lake. The lake, uh, then um, light doesn't penetrate as deeply into the water column. And so light becomes the limiting um, factor there. And so you have a die off. And then again, when that die off occurs, it can if the if the cyanobacterial bloom is re, is creating is producing toxins those cyanotoxins, um, microcystin again being the most common one, but there are others, including what's called anatoxin A, saxatoxin, and cylindrospermopsin, and they are a variety of either neurotoxins or liver toxins. So they either affect your nervous system or your liver, um, or well I don't say yours. They affect mammalian nerve right. systems and mammalian um, uh, livers liver systems. And so uh, microcystin happens to be a hepatotoxin, a liver toxin, so it affects a, a, a mammalian liver. But th- when that die-off occurs, that any toxin that's being produced in that cell can be released into the water column. So then if you consume water or if a mammal consumes water from the lake, um, there's potential for exposure that route. Um, and then there's also the uh, um, the bacterial or the, or the, I should say the biological or the chemical oxygen demand of that dying biomass, that senescing um, algal biomass that just draws the oxygen out of the water as it decays, which then can lead to uh, an an anoxic zone, a a low oxygen or no oxygen zone that uh, can either trap fish or or that could lead to a minor fish kill because then the Mm -hmm. fish can't breathe. Um, There's not enough oxygen for them. Um, And... uh, um, so does does the 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 BGA sort of, or the HAB or whatever whether we call it a HAB or does the HAB end up like um, sort of dying in its own waste product? It's it's not so much that it dies in its own waste product. It just there's a there, a nutrient or some other ecological factor necessary for their growth becomes limited okay. and they die off. Okay. So and and in that die off, then you get. Um, you know, again, that, that oxygen demand on the water column um, can be looked at as a, so, so from that perspective, you can look at that as, as similar to uh, um, other, you know, you don't want to soil your, soil your own nest, so to speak. Right, and yeah, so, you don't want to poop so, where you eat, right? Yeah, so when you, so the, 
So to equate that to, say, like a uh, wastewater treatment plant, the reason why we treat wastewater to the degree that we do before we release it back into the environment is, is historically when we were just pumping raw sewage into, um, into a river system or a creek system. <coughs> Go ahead. Into the creek system or river system, what happens is, is that uh, that biomass that degrading, decaying biomass that is excreted from, or that is, is discharged into the, uh, into the creek untreated puts that same kind of chemical or, or biological oxygen demand on that, that system to the point that those types of demands, that oxygen demand is actually um, for a wastewater treatment plant to, to close this loop. The, for a wastewater treatment plant, biological oxygen demand and chemical oxygen demand are oftentimes um, tests that are written into their National Pollution Discharge Elimination System permit, allowing them to discharge um, that treated effluent into, um, into a surface water again to ensure that there's not that demand put on the system that will cause um, the uh, you know, fish kills and, and other oxygen issues downstream. So... From that perspective, it is almost like a soil their own nest in terms of the that when that bloom dies and it puts an oxygen demand on the water column, it it it's very similar. Yeah. yeah. So it, it creates a, a, a resource a resource stress. You know, right? So they yeah. don't have what they need to, to survive anymore. Um, but you said it it tends to go like a cliff almost, right? The, the after you have one, if in the absence of say like more rain or uh, or turbidity it when you just see it and it's been sunny for two weeks or three weeks or however long it lasts it it will hit a point where it will use up the resources in its area or wherever it is and then it will start a die-off cycle is that yes okay yes and 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 what what you can also see is that um Sometimes when you have these other natural, um, what we call natural perturbations, but natural disturbances mm-hmm. um, that occur from, from rain events, wind events, um, a, a number of cloudy days that can also... So nothing, you could have no inflow events or no wind events, just a number of cloudy days that limit light. Really? And so you'll see a slight senescence, but then that doesn't... Then the clouds clear and light's no longer limited, and then you'll see another growth spurt. So you can see things that uh, look like an exponential growth curve, and then they level off, but it doesn't crash. Then that limiting factor doesn't become limited anymore, and it grows some more, levels off, and then may grow through another cycle. And then ultimately, though, any exponential growth curve that ultimately hits a point where resources become so limited, whatever that limiting resource is, and then that population crashes. And, and it's just a traditional exponential growth curve straight out of an ecology textbook that's a very sigmoid, S-shaped curve where you've got slow growth for, an, for a period of time, and then it gets into the exponential phase, which doesn't have to be a straight line up, but it's a pretty steep sloped line up. Mm-hmm. Then it, it will slowly level out again, but at some point that resource limits and then a population will drop down to below the population um, numbers where that exponential growth started a lot of times. So how do we, uh, there, there's not anything we can really do right now to treat a bloom, right, after the fact. 
Is it just a time thing you have to wait or, or is there something we can do? So, um, that, that so, say that doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't create more problems. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it, 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 before you meddle to make sure you don't throw away right. the parts. Yeah. Or any of the parts. Um, there's, there's always that to keep in mind. Yes. Um, uh, uh, things that we can do to, um, control. So we don't really have a lot of control options right now. There have been some initiatives uh, funded congressionally. So over the last uh, three or four years, um, the Corps and, and other agencies have been funded to address um, the prevention, control, and mitigation of harmful algal blooms, particularly focusing on cyanobacterial blooms, but also some hypoxia in the, in the Gulf of Mexico um, have been included in some of the legislation that has passed. But for the Corps specifically, the Engineer Research Development Center has funded a number of research and development projects recently with uh, um, the direction and, and, and funding from Congress um, appropriated through the Water Resources Development Act um, that gets specifically at options to control harmful algal blooms or to mitigate their impacts. Um, the focus of that ongoing research, one of the critical components that Congress wanted the Corps to address was that it be that any technologies that are assessed are scalable. So not just research and development that you can be successful on a benchtop in a laboratory, but that you can actually apply in the real world on lakes. And so um, just to keep in mind how big our lakes are, we have lakes that range from 110,000 acre feet or so in Tulsa District, all the way down to 6,000 acres, not acre feet, 110,000 surface acres, all the way down to about 5,800 or 6,000 yeah. surface Canton acres. Is like that. It's like Canton is like that. 6,000. Yeah, and uh, uh, Marion is, uh, Marion and Reservoir in Kansas is about 6,000 surface mm -hmm. acres. Um, I think it's. Uh, Eufaula is somewhere in that 108, 110,000 yeah. surface acres. Uh, Lake Texoma is, is 80, 85,000 surface acres. So, um, yeah, so we have some large reservoirs. We have some small reservoirs. And so the any of the technologies to control and prevent and mitigate these HABs, um, even if they are scalable, there's a cost. there's a cost prohibitive factor when you get to these huge reservoirs. But you can deal with coves. And so a lot of the a lot of the efforts that the Corps has gone has underway now, and that the Tulsa District has participated in some of these R and D efforts um, uh, through uh, either requesting assistance from ERDIC or participating in, in as a uh, as a, uh, a, a co principal investigator on on some of these, but but looking at uh, being able to partition off swim beaches and treat them with pro, uh, hydrogen peroxide is, a, is an approved um, pesticide um, or herbicide, depending on how we want to look at it. But it's approved by the US EPA as a, as a, as a pesticide that can be applied to aquatic systems that is uh, labeled to treat for cyanobacteria. Wow. Um, there's also granular versions and liquid versions of the peroxide treatment. Um, of course, there's the, the, the tried and true copper-based uh, uh, algicides, pesticides that are out there that, that have historically been used to treat 
for um, harmful algal growth, uh, not just cyanobacteria growth, but, but algae growth in general. And uh, you know, copper has some some. It's a it's a, a, a hazardous metal in in high concentrations to mammals, and so um, there's a lot of uh, disease with using that in water supply reservoirs, particularly. But it's not uncommon, and it's been if you use it correctly, like anything, and and you don't overuse it and you don't overapply it, it can do the job that it's meant to do without causing adverse effects or or uh, un unlimited adverse effects um, in the environment. The uh, um, preference has been to focus on a lot of peroxide-based herbicides to uh, look at uh, the prevention and control of uh, cyanobacteria. So um, so we're involved with ongoing research and development on, on that front. And then... But we're not, we're not doing that scale, like district-wide. That would be something that we would be doing study on at this point, right? We're, we're working with Erdic on the studies that they have funded. And yeah. so, so um, Marion Reservoir has been one of the, so Marion Reservoir in Kansas, mm-hmm. for those of you out there that may not be aware, was the first reservoir in Tulsa that bloomed with a, with a harmful algal bloom. And that was back in 2004 and uh, has bloomed every year since then. And, and the blooms are, are quite intense and they, they produce some microcystin toxins. And uh, we've gone through series of, of warnings and advisories and sometimes a late closure here and there in some years when, when, they've, when, the, when the bloom has presented uh, hazardous conditions to the recreating public. Um, and the Kansas Department of Health and Environment has recommended closure. We've, we've gone along with that. So, so there's a long history there. There's there's a, a, there are other lakes in the district that have uh, experienced some, some minor harmful algal blooms, but Marion is one that is well-known, and it's in the news quite a bit. And, uh, um, and then an adjacent watershed just outside of the Tulsa district is uh, Milford Lake, which has also had a lot of, of press and a lot of uh, research and development interest from the Kansas Department of Health and Environment and from ERDIC and from the US EPA as well for um, addressing HAB issues there. And so we're participating, when I say we're participating in that, yeah, the district is not doing the R&D and the, the studies on our own, but we are a partner with ERDIC and with the Kansas Department of Health and Environment looking at different options available to um, mitigate the impact of harmful algal blooms to some key mission areas for the core right. when they occur. Primarily what we're looking at is uh, recreation and right. our fish and wildlife uh, mission areas. We also have a mission area for um, water supply, but that mission for water supply is related to storage and to ensuring that the lake is is available to meet the contractual storage that we have with the water supply customer, not necessarily on water quality. Right. So. Our water quality focus, uh, our water quality focus through these R and D efforts is on the water quality and HAB impacts to these other um, critical mission areas that we have. Um, and there's there's also concern longer term that um, um, even on our flood risk management, our water management mission, um, and how we operate gates during during flood control operations or regular operations in the conservation pools of our reservoirs, is that when there is a bloom but we have requirements to meet downstream flow needs um, and those, those uh, um, 
those blooms are producing toxins or we're releasing balloon, we're releasing algae or cyanobacteria downstream into into other reaches of the watershed um, you know are there impacts related to those operations and those are areas that have been the a, a key focus for the Corps and for uh, state regulatory agencies um, around Lake Okeechobee in um, Jacksonville district in Florida as well you, you know that if you were to Google have Lake Okeechobee, you would see any number of, uh, of uh, um, HAB events that have included the EPA and the CDC and the Florida Department of uh, Environment and Health and the Florida Department of Fish and Game and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and the USGS and uh, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration also does a lot of support to the Corps in the state. In, um, in that part of the United States related specifically to HAB response, HAB monitoring, and looking at ways to mitigate the impacts of those HABs in, in, uh, to, to people who live and work around um, Lake Okeechobee. So, so where, where, what, what do people need to mostly know with regard to, to HABs? Or if you think you see it, I guess, is stop and... What, what import, what's important for people to know about about these the out about the the outbreaks or the potential for the outbreaks? So, I think the most important thing for people to know is that um, is that uh, be aware that um, harmful algal blooms exist, that they can occur in water bodies. Um, throughout the Tulsa district, there are la- there are lakes that have never had a cyanobacteria bloom on them in the past, but that doesn't mean that there won't be one in the future. Um, be aware that when you see discolored water, it could be a blue-green algae bloom, it could be a cyanobacteria bloom, um, and uh, the state's messaging on that is really clear. If it's green, stop. It might be blue-green algae. Um, if you see discolored water, that doesn't mean that you can't recreate at that water at the water's edge. It doesn't mean that you can't utilize other recreation resources available to you um, on the lake or on the shoreline. It just means that um, in that portion of the lake where you see that bloom, um, what we call primary body contact, but you know body contact with the water um, may put you may put you at greater risk. Um, Children are at greater risk than adults. Um, pets are at greater risk than children. Um, pets uh, will wade in the water. The algae gets stuck in their fur. They lick the fur. They're drinking the water, and then they're licking the fur. So their fur acts as a filter in a way. It concentrates algae in their fur, and um, they get a higher dose than they would just from drinking the water. Um, but sometimes there's enough toxin microcystin released in the water of um, that that just consuming the water can harm a dog, either make the dog ill, give him liver damage, or um, the uh, or it could uh, um, result in the dog's or animal's death. So um, there are very few human deaths and poisonings uh, attributed to cyanobacterial toxins. The ones that have occurred that have been documented in the scientific literature are related to. Um, uh, very unique events that were not um, the that were not the result of a recreational exposure. So there is a risk. It's a low risk. Um, 
in that discolored water, children are going to consume more water just by splashing around than an adult would. Um, during, I think it's children consume maybe, I think it's 80 milliliters of water um, uh, during 30 minutes of, of swimming and splashing in, in a lake or a, or a pool relative to an adult that, that may only consume or, or accidentally, inadvertently consume um, like 50 milliliters of water. So, um, so uh, again, you know, there's that risk, but the risk is low. Um, but it, it is there. And so just being aware of the risks so that you can, for yourself and your family, make the best recreation decision that you can for you based on the available information. And so when you see that discolored water, what we ask folks to do is just think about it check in with the ranger, check in with the gate shack uh, or the, you know, where the entry gate uh, attendant where you uh, checked into that campground. They'll be aware of any um, uh, uh, cyanobacteria or blue green algae alert notices that the Corps or the state, either in Kansas or Oklahoma, have put together. Um, and we, I, I haven't mentioned Texas much um, because uh, where we have uh, facilities in Texas, um, it's at the south south bank of the uh, of Lake Texoma, and then um, Pat Mays Lake um, in Texas, and we've just adopted what we've uh, um, put in place for our Oklahoma lakes for those uh, for the southern side of Lake Texoma and for Pat Mays just for some consistency for the staff there, then in Lake Texoma and the Red River office that uh, have responsibility for for the recreation mission there at the at the lakes. What have I not asked you that I probably should have asked you that it's important for people to know? I think what is really important for folks to know that you haven't hit on particularly is is that there is a there is a very active effort um, across the uh, across state and federal agencies nationally that are um, addressing HAB-related issues, um, both from a surface water recreation lake management perspective and uh, from a water supply perspective. So a lot of things that have gotten in the news is uh, 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 since 2014 is, is water supply. You know, the city of Toledo's water supply was shut down because of algal toxins in, in, in Lake Erie. The City of Salem's uh, water supply was shut down for the sensitive for a sensitive population because of some low-level microcystin toxins that were found in Finnish water several years ago, and and there's a there is some legislation that continues to be reauthorized by Congress. It's called the Harmful Algal Bloom Hypoxia Control and Amendments Act. It was most recently re uh, reauthorized in 2017, and uh, it directs federal agencies to participate in an interagency working group under that uh, what is called Habarka legislation, again the Harmful Algal Bloom Hypoxia Research Control Amendments Act, and, um, and the core is a named member of that interagency working group and we work with um, uh, agencies across the spectrum on HAB issues and that interagency working group is uh, is responsible for making regular reports to Congress on our progress. And when I say a, 
a uh, full range of uh, agency representation. It's the 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 co-chairs of the IWG are NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, the U.S. EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, then we have the Corps, um, and we have the USGS and the USDA and the NRCS and the FDA and the CDC and NASA and the oceanographer of the Navy and the Corps of Engineers. And I mean, it is a, it is every agency that has something to bring to bear to address these issues for the nation um, are there and actively participating and they're, they're doing great work for the nation. And, uh, um, and, and, and they're, they're engaging with their state partners and in a, in a very collaborative and cooperative way that uh, is uh, uh, bringing the resources of the nation to bear on, on this topic. There are a lot of things that the nation face, it faces in terms of environmental and, and water quality issues. This is, this is a very important one, and, uh, and it, is, uh, it is being addressed by, uh, by folks across the spectrum. Dr. Clyde, I want to thank you for taking the time to sit down with me and discuss harmful algal blooms and um, blue-green algae. Thank you for joining us for Corestruction. Corestruction is a production of the Tulsa District U.S. Army Corps of Engineers Public Affairs Office. Thank you for joining us for Corestruction. Corestruction is a production of the Tulsa District U.S. Army Corps of Engineers Public Affairs Office. This episode of Corestruction was brought to you by Civil Works. Thanks for joining us and have a great day. Mm -hmm.